Well, good morning, church. Um, today, uh, our text, our reading is in uh, Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 20. And for the past seven weeks, we have been in this series, in the book of Revelations, um, reading these letters that John was given to by Jesus to seven different churches to evaluate and to assess their spiritual condition. And so some people have argued that these seven churches that John wrote about are supposed to be a representation or symbolic. It's either a representation of seven different types of churches or seven different types of Christians. Either seven different types of churches found in the first century, um, and not just in the first century, but also in any period of church history. And so these letters are just a representation that they would argue. Um, And so as you read these letters, you can kind of see how God is speaking to his church back then and he's speaking to his church now. And some people have argued that these letters are a representation of seven different types of Christians, seven different types of Christian that exist throughout the world and throughout history. And so as you read these letters, you see that it's a picture of what many of our lives may look like. It's a picture of where you and I may be with the Lord. And yes, there are some historical connections to real churches, but they would argue that this is just symbolic. But then there's a third view or another view which says that it's both historical and symbolic, and which is what I believe. It's historical. It's talking about seven real churches that existed with real issues, and it is symbolic, talking about churches that exist back then and churches that exist now, and Christians, Christians back then and Christians now. And so we see how these letters are relevant. God is speaking to his church back then, and he's speaking to his church now, to his people back then and to his people now. And so this is why at the end of every single letter, we hear Jesus say to his people, he who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says. And so these letters, though they are historical, they are also a mirror of our own spiritual condition. We all could probably identify with one of those letters. We all can see how one of these letters could be a reflection of our own spiritual condition. And so right now, what I want to do is give us a quick recap on the letters that we've covered so far before we dive into our last letter to the church in Laodicea. And I want you to be honest. I want you to be honest and ask yourself, yourself, which church am I? Which church am I? Which church best reflect my own spiritual condition? And this is probably a good question that you can have in your city group time. Uh, this is a plug for Citigroup. If you're not in Citigroup, you probably need to be in one. Find out how you can get plugged in. Um, and so right now, I just want to dive into just a quick recap of all the six letters that we've covered so far. We covered the church in Ephesus, and this was the loveless church. They were the church that worked very hard. They had a lot of zeal. They had a lot of passion. They were very religious, very spiritual. They did a lot of great things for God, a lot of great things for God and a lot of great things in the community. This was probably one of the hardest working church out of all the seven churches that we read about. They were also very patient. They endured through hard times, trials, persecution, social challenges. They hated evil and they had doctrinal purity. And it seemed like this church met all the criteria to a good and a healthy church. However, this was the church, even though they checked all the criteria, they checked all the boxes to being a healthy church, to looking like a good, spiritually active church. Jesus said to this church, you are loveless. You're loveless. They lost their love. They lost their fervor. They lost their passion for God. That passion and that love that they had when they first heard the gospel. 
It's possible for us to do a lot of good things, have the right doctrine, but then our hearts be far from God. And it's possible for us to do a lot of great things, but do those things not out of a motivation of love, but a motivation of religious obligation. And so this is why we see in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus says, 2 and 4, Jesus says to them, you have abandoned your love that you had at first. See, this church had settled into a religion, a settled, settled into a routine of tradition and lost sight of Jesus. And so it's possible for us to be very religious and to be godless, to be Christians and to be Christless, to have tradition, but not have a relationship, to have faith, but not have love. Could that be you? Could that be me? Are we Ephesus? We read about the church in Smyrna. This was the persecuted church. This was a church that was going through a lot of difficult challenges. They suffered because they were following Jesus. These people decided to follow Jesus and it didn't make their lives easier. In fact, it made their lives harder. And I think sometimes we lead people to believe that following Jesus makes our lives easier, that it exempts us from suffering, it exempts us from sickness, it exempts us from poverty. But the reality is Jesus never promised us any of that. Right? Following Jesus doesn't exempt us from challenges. Today, Christians in the Middle East are in prison and even killed for having the Bible downloaded on their phones. Following Jesus doesn't exempt us from trials. And Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 16. If you want to follow me, be prepared to carry your cross be prepared to suffer loss. But the promise that we have when we decide to follow Jesus is that he will be with us. He would be with us in the midst of the fire. He will be with us in our suffering. He will comfort us and strengthen us to overcome. And so this is what Jesus says to the church in Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2 and 10. Though the devil, listen to this, though the devil is about to throw some of you in prison, that you may be tested for 10 days, you will have tribulation, but be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful unto death, he tells them. Following Jesus doesn't exempt us from even death. And so Jesus is encouraging this church to be faithful. And when you do, the crown of life will be yours. Is that you? Are you facing some hard, difficult times because you have been faithful to Jesus? And what Jesus is wanting to encourage you today is to be faithful. He is with you. Are you Smyrna? We read about the church in Pergamum. And this was the worldly church. And this was the church that was tolerant. This was the church that refused to deny Jesus even in the midst of a sinful culture, even in the midst of persecution. They were surrounded by all types of sin. They lived in a sexually immoral culture. They lived, they worked, they played around people who hated them and hated God. They lived in a very dark place. They held strong to the name of Jesus, but at the same time, they were holding strong to their old ways. They held strong to the name of Jesus, but at the same time, they looked no different than the world. There were Christians, but functional atheists. They were holding on to Jesus, but then at the same time holding on to their idols. And we read this in Revelation chapter 2, verse 13, where Jesus says, You hold fast to my name, 
and you did not deny the faith. But then we go on to 14, yet you hold on to the teaching of Balaam and you hold on to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. They were compromising their integrity and compromising their values, tolerating sin, living inconsistent, a double life. They wanted to blend in. And to be honest, there are times I see myself in Pergamum. There are times I see Pergamum as me, where I do want to hold on to Jesus but then at the same time, I'm holding on to idols in my life. I do want to hold on to his name and be faithful to him, but then at the same time, I'm inconsistent. And it seems like I do live a double life. I don't want to be Pergamum. And I hope you don't either. We read about the church in Thyatira, and this was the tolerant church. They love They had faith, they had good works, and they were eager to grow, but they tolerated false teachings. We just read about a church that had doctrinal purity, but this church was a church that just welcomed all types of philosophies, right? So in this church, they barely studied God's word, so they weren't rooted in God's word, and they had a shallow understanding of God's word. And so because of that, they were swayed by all types of philosophies and popular opinion. They were very impressionable to the culture. And we read this in Revelation chapter 2 and 20, where Jesus says to them, you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and a teacher and deceive my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat meat sacrificed to idols. And we see as a result, they looked like the world because they weren't grounded in God's truth. They weren't allowing the word of God to inform how they live. They were allowing culture to inform how they live. And so they lived a distorted, watered down Christian relative life. They wanted to be relative to the culture. And so they had to water down their faith. They weren't grounded. Is that you on your campuses or at work? Are you Thyatira? Are you allowing things and popular opinion to inform how you should live, or are you rooted and grounded in God's word? Then we read about the church in Sardis, and this is the spiritually dead church. Almost all the people in this church had fallen spiritually asleep. They were dead. They thought they were alive because of all the great things that people said about them. But then they were dead. On the outside, they looked very good because they knew how to play the part. But then inside, they were dead. And so this is what Jesus says to them in Revelations 3.1. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And he tells them to wake up. Stop playing games. Let's make this real. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. And this was the church that needed to be real. Make this relationship, this faith that they have with Jesus real. Do you need to wake up, Sardis? Is that you? And last week... We read about the church in Philadelphia, and this was the spiritually alive church. And this church did well. There was no rebuke for this church. They kept the faith. They never denied Jesus. Despite poverty, despite persecution, despite suffering, they stayed true to God. And then we read this in Revelations 3, 8. Jesus says to them, because of this, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my words and have not denied it. And so this was the church that did not come to Jesus just for a blessing. They didn't come to Jesus for prosperity. They didn't come to Jesus for healing. 
or come to Jesus looking for their best life now. This was the church that came to Jesus just to find him. This was the church that just wanted Jesus because he was their best life now, because he was their prosperity, because he was their reward. And for this, Jesus says to this church in Revelations 3, 12, you are going to be a pillar in the temple of God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of God, the new Jerusalem, which come down from God out of heaven and my own new name. And pretty much this was the church that Jesus was saying, they are mine. I'm going to put a ring on this one. This is mine. Don't you want to be Philadelphia to hear that say a few? And so when we read these letters, the reading of these letters were not intended to shame or bring guilt to any of these churches. It was intended to draw these churches back to the heart of God. It was intended to be a blessing. And this is why we read in Revelations 1-3, he says, blessed is the one who reads about the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and who keep it, right? It was intended to be exposing, but then at the same time, it was intended to be encouraging. It was intended to bring a blessing, which means joy, As we read these, God is calling you back to him so you can find joy to draw us away from those things that are holding us back and to draw us to him. And so as you read these letters, which one are you? So today we're going to look at the last of these letters to the church in Laodicea. And now it seems like Jesus saves his harshest critique for the last church because this was the church that was indifferent to God. This was the church that was indifferent to God. So indifference is probably one of the most destructive sins in our lives that you would never hear people talk about. Indifference is the sin of all sins. Indifference is when We lose our reverence and our preeminence of God. When we are no longer moved by his authority, we are no longer moved by his presence in our lives. When we get to that place where it doesn't matter what role God plays in my life or in my decision, where it doesn't matter if I sin boldly in his sight and it doesn't grieve me, Indifference is when God is functionally dead in our lives, where God doesn't make a difference. This was the church in Laodicea. But then the question is, how did they get there? How did they get to this place where they were indifferent? Well, when you look at verse 14, Jesus says to this church, write to the angel of the church in Laodicea, Thus says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, right? So we're starting to see what Jesus is trying to communicate to this church. He is the true, true amen. He is the faithful witness and he's the God of creation. We'll see why this matters. This is the first time and the only time we see God uses the word amen as his personal name. This is the first time that we see the Lord is using this as his title. Usually when we see the word amen, it comes after a truthful statement. And the word amen in Hebrew means of the truth, right? And so whenever we hear something that's true, we normally say, you guys are asleep like Sardis, right? (laughs) We say amen whenever we hear something that's true. But here... There's a definite article in front of amen. He is the amen, meaning that he is the truth. And he's using this as his name and his title. 
right? And so this is the first and the only time that we're seeing this. And so Jesus is the truth. He's establishing himself as the source, source of truth. And then and this is why he says in verse 14, he is the faithful witness. He testifies of all that he sees and all that he knows. And Jesus is the witness of our lives. No one knows us better than Jesus. And that's why when we stand before God, Jesus will bear witness of our lives, all of our thoughts, all of our intentions, all of our actions, things seen, things hidden. He is the witness of our lives. But then I believe Jesus wants to be more of an advocate than a witness against us. And what I mean by that, when you read in 1 John 2, 1, John says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He wants to be an advocate because none of us can stand by ourselves in front of God, who is the perfect righteous judge. Because we are all guilty of sin, falling short of his glory. But then we see that the blood of Jesus has cleaned our record. So when we stand in the courtroom of God, the blood of Jesus has cleaned our record. He cleansed us from our sins. He's made us right before God. And when we stand before God, Jesus stands next to us. Right? And so that's why, that's why when we stand before God, God who is the amen of amen, the righteous judge, Jesus will stand here by our side as our advocate and plead our case for us and say, I have covered their death. I paid it all. I laid down my life. I have given them my own righteousness. They no longer owe you. The penalty of sin has been satisfied. And the amen of amen, the judge will say, amen. He wants to be an advocate for us. And then not just that, but he is the true witness of our faith. So he is the amen, the true witness of our faith. But then we read he is the source of creation, the beginning of creation. Now, if you were in Laodicea, you heard that phrase, the beginning of creation, it would ring in your ear because you've heard that phrase before, right? Because it was a familiar phrase because you have read that in a letter before, right? See, the church in Laodicea was located about 10 minutes away from another church that we all know, which was the church in Colossae, the Colossian church. In fact, the, the, the church in Laodicea was a church plant of the Colossian church. And so if you remember the reason why Paul wrote this letter to the Colossian church, you will see the connection between Laodicea and Colossians. The Colossian church at the time, they were going through this harsh debate within the church. There were these group of people called the Gnostics. And they had came into the church and they were causing a division because they were debating, questioning the deity of Christ, who is Jesus. And so Paul wrote this letter to the Colossian church to help them see who is Jesus. Because the Gnostic had pretty much reduced Jesus to just being a created being, an angel. And so Paul wrote this letter to help the Colossian church understand who Jesus is. And so it's likely that because of the closeness of Colossians, the Colossian church in Laodicea, this had also affected the church in Laodicea, this debate between the Gnostics. And so we read this letter that Paul wrote to Colossians talking about, arguing, giving a defense for the deity of Christ. In Colossians 1, 15 and 17, Paul says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn of all creation, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers, authority. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. And so this was the argument for the identity of Christ. Jesus was not just a created being or an angel, just like the Jehovah Witness would say. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And that word firstborn in the Greek means prototokos, which is where we get the word prototype from, which means the model other things come out of. And so Jesus is the prototype and not just that, but he is the creation of all creation. And that's why everything was created by him and for him. He is the source. Things in heaven and things on earth. And then we see Paul says he is the alpha. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. And pretty much what Paul is saying is take a bigger look at Jesus and see who he is. He is more than an angel. He is more than that man upstairs. He is more than that big guy. Put some respect on his name. And so Paul is trying to get the Colossian church to see Jesus is God. And so Paul wrote these letters, these beautiful words about the person of Jesus. And then read in Colossians 4.15, he says this, give my greetings to the brothers and the sisters in Laodicea. And to Nympha, and to the church in her home. And then after this letter has been read at your gathering, have this letter also read in Laodicea. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And so this letter to the Colossian was supposed to be read in Laodicea to know who Jesus was. And so this idea of Jesus being just an angel and not God would be false so that they can take Jesus seriously and not be indifferent to him. Because this was a serious issue to Paul and he was very concerned and he didn't want them to be lukewarm. And then we read in Colossians 2, 1 and 2, Paul says, for I want, look at, the, look at Paul's heart and passion here. I want you to know how greatly I am struggling for you, for those in Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me in person. I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have knowledge of God's mystery, who is Christ. In him are hidden all the treasures of heaven and knowledge. Look at Paul's burden and his passion for Laodicea. But then what happened? What happened to the church in Laodicea to receive such a stern, harsh letter from Jesus? Well, Eventually, the church in Laodicea lost its ways. They lost their ways. They lost sight of who Jesus was. They lost sight of his beauty. They lost sight of how rich Jesus was. And they lost sight of Jesus being their true treasure. They say that Laodicea became one of the most affluent, wealthiest churches out of the seven And not just that, but Laodicea became the most successful church out of the seven. And then we see a lot of times when we get a little bit more success, when we get a little bit more money, when we get a little bit more power, we're no longer desperate for God. We're no longer desperate for God. I want you to think about the times in your life when you were desperate for God when you were hungry for God. It probably was 
a time in your life when you needed God the most. Maybe you were taking a test and you fasted and you prayed because you wanted to pass this test. You were hungry for God. Maybe you needed to pay a bill, right? And man, you were faithful to God, faithful in reading your Bible, faithful in prayer, and you probably even was faithful in giving offering to church because you wanted God to bless you with more so you can pay your bills. Maybe you had a loved one who was sick, or maybe you were sick, and you just needed God, and you were hungry for God, and you were coming to him, praying to him. Maybe you needed to get married, and you were fasting and praying like you never did before, and you were faithfully coming to church because there are prospects, right? (laughs) So maybe it was time in your life where You're praying for God to give you a kid, give you a child. And man, you're you're begging the Lord. You're begging the Lord. You're seeking his face. Or maybe it was a time where you needed God to save your family, save your marriage. And you were hungry for God. The thing is, when we are in need, we are desperate and we are hungry for God. But when we are in comfort, when we have success, when we're no longer in need, we become indifferent. We become indifferent. And so this was Laodicea. They lost sight of the truth, the amen, which was Jesus. They lost sight of the source, who is the beginning of all creation. They lost sight of the authority, the sovereign God who controls all things, who hold all things together. They lost sight of Jesus because they became rich. They became successful. They became full, full of themselves. They were no longer hungry. You know, it's like that team, that football team, the moment they win the championship, they're no longer hungry anymore. And this was Laodicea. We become indifferent in our confidence in God. We become indifferent in our respect in God. We become indifferent in our obedience, indifferent even in our sharing of God and making him known when we're no longer hungry for him and we're no longer desperate for him. And so this is why in Revelation 3.15, Jesus says to them, listen, I know your work, that you're neither hot or cold, but then I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. I'm going to vomit you out. You make me sick. Such a harsh statement from Jesus that I'm going to vomit you out. You make me sick. You know, it's funny, as I read this, I was thinking to myself, and this could be a little sacrilegious, but Jesus sometimes sounds very rude at times. Sometimes he sounds very rude, right? I don't know if you remember in John chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus was at this wedding with his mom, and then... The party kind of ran out of wine. It was no longer lit, right? And so Jesus' mom kind of nudges him. It's like, hey, Jesus, the party like ran out of wine. Come on, do your little thing, you know? Turn water into wine. He probably did that for Joseph, right? But then he turns around to his mom and he says, woman, what does that have to do with me? That's exactly what he says. That's none of my business. Why are you telling me to do this? And then, listen, my mind kind of goes crazy because I think of Jesus like my mom. Probably Mary was about to slap him. And then that's why he kind of ran and was like, hey, right, let's turn this water into wine. Because, I mean, he's like, woman? That's kind of crazy. Right? So it's a joke. It's it's a joke. It's not But, I mean, sometimes when we read how Jesus has these interactions, right, he called Herod a fox, right? 
Not like nowadays we're like, hey, you're a fox. But that was actually an insult. He called the Pharisees vipers and snakes. He even said to the Pharisees, man, your daddy's the devil. (laughs) Right? I mean, like, yeah, this is Jesus. He's straight up a G. All right? And he said to the religious leaders, you are a hypocrite. You are a fool. You're blind. You're like a grave full of dead men's bones. But then why does Jesus use harsh languages like that? And especially to the church in Laodicea, like, you make me sick. I just want to throw up in my mouth. Well, we see that Jesus only reserved his harshest language for the self-righteous. For the self-righteous. When he spoke to the woman caught in adultery, his words were very tender. When he spoke to the woman at the well, his words were very tender. But with the self-righteous, we see how he speaks to them because the way that Jesus communicates to people explains the disposition of their hearts, right? So when I talk to a toddler, I'm going to talk to a toddler different than I talk to a teenager, right? When I talk to a teenager, I'm going to talk to a teenager different than I talk to an adult, When I talk to my five-year-old, Isaiah, I'm going to talk differently than how I speak to my wife, even though sometimes she says I speak to her the same way. Um, But Jesus was talking to this group of people who made him sick because they were sick and they didn't even know it. Right? They were neither refreshing to him like cold water, When you're thirsty, you want to drink some cold water because it's refreshing. And they were neither pure like hot water. You boil hot water to kill the bacteria and make it safe to drink. Lukewarm water is useless. It's unpure. It makes you sick like warm Coca-Cola is nasty, right? You put it in the freezer to taste delicious, right? And so listen. This was a play on words, a play on words, because Jesus was metaphorically speaking to describe the condition of Laodicea because he was connecting that to the history of the city and Laodicea. Laodicea, they were unclean, undrinkable waters, and Jesus wanted to spit them out. And so I'm not going to go into too much historical context, but Laodicea had a terrible water supply. They were known for this. Their waters were nasty and lukewarm, kind of like Flint. Michigan's water system is filled with lead and it's undrinkable. It makes you sick. And so Laodicea was known for having a nasty, lukewarm water supply. And listen to this. Although Laodicea was one of the richest cities, they didn't want to invest in building a clean water supply. And so what they decided to do, people in Laodicea would walk six miles to this place called Europolis for the hot springs, which to get out of Europolis, six miles they would walk to get pure water, clean water, or walk 10 miles to Colossae, for their cold springs, their refreshing water. But the people in Laodicea was okay with the water in their own village, in their own town. And so they were okay with walking 10 miles each way, which is 20, or walking six miles every single day. But instead of investing to clean, they had the money, they had the resources, but they were just okay with what they had. They were indifferent to their own situation. It didn't bother them because they were rich. They had the money, but they didn't care to invest in what was essential. And so this is why Jesus is using this as a play on words where he is saying that you are indifferent about your dirty, lukewarm water that's making you sick You are indifferent about me, you are lukewarm, and you 
make me sick, like your waters are making me sick. And so listen to what Jesus says in verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy, and I need nothing. They said to Jesus, look, I'm rich, I'm wealthy, I need nothing. Even though I'm drinking from this well that's making me sick, I am rich, I don't need God. Right? Even though I'm drinking from this well that is poison and that's killing me, I'm rich. I don't need God. And even though I'm drinking from this well, this well of relationship, right? This well of wealth or this well of success, we are saying to God, I'm rich. I don't need nothing. But this well that we're drinking from, it's not quenching and it's not satisfying. It's not refreshing. But then we're still saying to God, I don't need you. I'm good. And then we see Laodicea is saying, listen, I don't care how far it is. I'm going to work. I'm going to go. I'm going to try. I'm self-sufficient. I'm self-reliant. I can do this on my own. I don't need God. And this was the disposition of their heart. We don't need the source of all creation. We got money. We got success. We got beauty. We got smart. We got our degrees. We can do it on our own. We are hustlers, right? And this was the disposition of the people in Laodicea. I am different, indifferent. I don't need God. Whether we pray to him or we don't, whether we trust in him or we don't, whether we are passionate about him or we're not, whether we have him or we don't, we're good. I don't need God. And sometimes this is the disposition of a lot of our hearts. And this was Laodicea. But then listen to what Jesus says to them. You don't realize that you are wretched. You are pitiful. You are poor, you are blind, and you are naked. You think you are rich because you have money, but you're really poor. And Jesus has a wealth to give you that you can't compare to the wealth that you think you have. You think you are wretched, or you are wretched, he says. Kind of like he's saying you're ratchet, right? You're, You're wretched. You're wretched. You think you're happy. But Jesus has sweeter joy to give to you that can't compare to the happiness that you think you will find from the wells that you're drinking from. You're pitiful. And that word really was it to be an insult. That word really was to be God revealing his heart. He's saying, I pity you. I feel sad for you. I am broken over you. The fact that you are pursuing after this well, and it breaks my heart that I am inviting you to something better, but you keep going after this well that's not providing you with the life that you're looking for, and it breaks my heart. And then you're blind and naked. Pretty much he's saying, you need help. You need me to guide you because you can't see You can't see this is only leading you to shame, nakedness, humiliation, right? And so verse 18, this is his counsel to the church in Laodicea. He says, listen, I advise you to buy from me gold refined in fire so that you may be rich with clothes so that you may be dressed and your shamefulness or shameful nakedness not be exposed, an ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. And so Jesus says to them, listen, buy gold from me. But then he just told them that they were poor. How do they buy gold when they're broke? He says, buy gold from me, but you're broke. But then how do you even work to earn this money to buy gold from Jesus when you're naked and shameful. You can't work. 
Jesus knows this. In fact, he, he rigs this so that you can't earn this, that you can't work for this. He rigged it so that you would be desperate and come to him who is the amen and the source of creation to give us what we can't earn. And listen to what he says in Isaiah chapter five, 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, who wants this pure, refreshing water, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come, buy wine, milk, without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for what which is not bread and your labor for what which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me. Eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. And then we read in Revelations 21, 6, Jesus says, it's done. I am the alpha and the omega, the source of all creation, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the waters of life without payment. He's rigging this. You can't work for this. You're broke. But then look, Revelation 22, the spirit and the bride says, come, let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty, come, let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. And then we read in John 7, 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood and he cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. That's the invitation Jesus is making to you and I. God is inviting you to come. You are broke. He is inviting you to come. Drink from his rich, expensive well that gives the water of life and we can eat and be satisfied. He's inviting you to come. This well is expensive, but the price to drink from it has been satisfied. It's been paid in full. We are broke, but he makes us rich. We are naked, but he clothes us with his own righteousness. We are wretched, but he makes us worthy, and we are blind, and he gives us eyesight to see. And then he says in verse 19, listen, be zealous and repent. That's how you get this gold from him. That's how you get this gold that he is offering. Be zealous and repent. Be zealous. That's the word that means be passionate, be devoted, be thirsty, be hungry. Be zealous. Stop being indifferent. And then he says, repent, come back. Come back. Be passionate, not indifferent, but then come and draw from his well. He's inviting you. He's inviting me. And then verse 20 and 22, Jesus says, listen, see, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquer and sat down on my father's throne, with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Jesus says that I am standing at the door and I am knocking. I am inviting you. I am knocking. I am calling out to you. And right now, we are hearing his knocking on our conscience, and we are hearing his knocking on the doors of our hearts. We can be indifferent and ignore what we are hearing, ignore that he is telling us that we need to repent, ignore that he is telling us that we need to take this relationship with him more seriously, ignore that he is telling us that what we are pursuing is not going to be satisfying. We can ignore him like those neighbors on Halloween that pretend like they're not home. They turn off the lights. 
right? You're knocking and they're like, oh, but then you see them in the window. Jesus can see your heart. He sees through the windows of your heart. He knows if you are ignoring him or not. And he just wants to be let in. For many of us, for many of us, we're just satisfied with Jesus sitting on our porches. And we're not willing to open the door to invite him in. We're just satisfied with Jesus sitting on the porch outside. And we feel like, hey, as long as you're here, right? But then he wants to be let in. The opposite of lukewarmness is that candlelight dinner with Jesus, where we invite him in to the innermost of our rooms, in the innermost of our hearts, inviting him in to the innermost room of our affections, and not just sitting on the porch. But then the text kind of closes with this, to those who invite Jesus in. Those who invite Jesus in, this is what Jesus says to them. I will invite you in as well into my father's kingdom, not just in my father's kingdom, but also in the innermost room of my father's kingdom. And not just that, but I will invite you into his throne room and then not just to stand by his throne, but I will invite you to sit on his throne with him. And we see how Jesus says, those who invite me in to the innermost room of their affections, I will invite you in to the innermost room of my father's heart to sit on the throne with the father. And Jesus is inviting you to the highest quality of life, the highest quality of joy, right? Rich food. And it's free. And he calls us just to be zealous and to repent. You can't work for it. You're broke. But it's free. Just be zealous and repent. That's all we need to do. And we see this is an amazing act of grace that you and I don't deserve. And so those who were about to be spewed out, spit out of the Father's mouth. Now those people are invited into the Father's kingdom, into the Father's throne room, and to sit with the Father on his throne. Those who were about to be vomit out are now being invited and how amazing is that grace that you and I don't deserve? Let's pray. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information about Blueprint Church, visit us online at blueprintchurch.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Blueprint Church. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.